My name is Peter Watson, and uh, I'm on the staff here. Normally, I hang out with the 8.30 mob. We're working our way through, or on a journey, through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And um, that, uh, that uh, takes up three whole chapters of, of Matthew's Gospel. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, as Matthew reports it to us. And um, it takes up about, hundred I think it's right, 107 verses. And this morning, can we have the text up? And this morning, we're looking at just six verses we've just we've read a, a moment ago. Um, Meredith read them a moment ago for us, and you will recall that there's in those six verses, there's three images that Jesus has put before us. We're about halfway through the sermon. We're halfway through chapter six. We've got chapter seven to go. It's very interesting to think about these illustrations, these images, almost little parables, um, it, 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 it demonstrates, or I will hope to show, that the, the imagery and the, the language that Jesus uses is as contemporary as um, a fresh cup of coffee. Um, what 2008 and 2009 did for us, um, the global financial crisis, and those of us who are retirees know what happened in those years. Uh, we all did, actually. Um, the moths and the vermin and the thieves are still with us. Only sometimes some of them wear business suits. And um, if you're like me and you're getting on and you've got glaucoma, you know all about the eyes being the light of the body because in Melbourne when it was discovered I had some glaucoma and already damage in this eye. And you'd, it's symptom-free almost. You don't know that you're going blind. And I think what Jesus is hinting at, and perhaps more than hinting, is there are those who are listening to him who are spiritually in darkness. It's the illustration, the image that he uses. is based on the old view that the, the eyes are like lamps that let light into your body. We've since understand it a little Better, but maybe the point is still that if the light is working, everything's okay. But once the light goes out, that's a new scenario altogether. And of course, the final illustration is the choice between God and mammon, or God and money. Our translation says money, cash. We think of money as cash. We're almost a cashless society. It's a translation of the word mammon which is the personification of wealth. And elsewhere in the Bible, not just Jesus, um, uh, St. Paul, St. James, indicate that the great rival for our affections, which should be directed to God, is in fact worldly wealth and all that that stands for. So they're the three images that Jesus puts before us. And at this point, there's a change of pace in the way the sermon is unfolding. The structure of the sermon is really helpful to us, can indicate what the sermon, what Jesus is, 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 is getting at in this, in this long address. It begins not with the law, though he soon talks about the law of God, it begins with the Beatitudes, those eight blessednesses. It begins with the, the eight Beatitudes. 
and then follows his examination of the law of God or what certain parts of the law of God. And then, then the early part of chapter 6, he's talking about religious practices, prayer and fasting and giving. And then the, it goes on, there's more consideration of, 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 of big principles in the rest of chapter anxiety, worry, chapter 6, and then issues in chapter 7. The sermon ends with a little parable we used to sing about when I was a kid at Sunday school, build on the rock and not upon the sand. And Jesus' words with which the sermon ends, um, a person who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. A person who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them is like a person, the man who built his house upon the sand. And when the storm came... Great was the destruction of that house. So the point is being made rather forcefully that it's all about behaviour. It's all about the kind of people we are, the kind of people we are inside. What's, what's, what's the real Peter Watson like? What's the real person you are? What's it like? Is it darkness in there? Or is it flooded with the light of Christ? So the first... Chapter, first part of the, the sermon, chapter 5, is a re-examination of the law and a look at religious practice. And it's, it's in part Jesus answering the, his own question or the comment that he makes that the, the righteousness of his hearers must exceed the righteousness of the teachers of the law that they'd grown up under. Except your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He then goes on to outline, out, outline the law and then make comments about it. The, the religion of the day is probably best exemplified by the question that the rich man put to Jesus when he came to him. We'll look at that in a moment later on, which is recorded for us later on in Matthew's Gospel. He comes up to Jesus, he asks a question uh, about eternal life. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, that's not a, that's not a bad summation, not a bad summary of, of the religion of the Judaism of the day with which Jesus clashed, which ultimately put him on the cross. And so he's, 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 he's attempting to deal with that. And, he, and that, he does that by his re-examination of the law and of religious practice. And he's basically saying, look, you, you guys, you hold it out there. But God won't, won't, God won't have that. God wants your mind. He wants your will. He demands to touch your conscience. Otherwise, you, you do not understand what he is doing. And that is what Jesus is endeavouring, the point he's endeavouring to make. And so he comes to these three images up until this point, the sermon has been uh, challenging and instructive. But now, it's almost as if he's saying, now is the time to decide. Now is decision moment. The rival for, for our affections is, is mammon. What's the opposite of that? Well, it's, the answer's reasonably simple. <laughs> it takes no great shakes to work out that what... The, the, the opposite to that is to choose Christ. We saw it demonstrated wonderfully in Christian baptism here this morning. But what does it mean to choose Christ? Jesus is demonstrating to choose Christ has enormous implications and consequences for us. 
It's not choosing Christ in a vacuum. Let me give you an illustration. It's, it's perhaps a little over the top, although it's real. Take Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Germany consists of two great religious or denominations. Not so much religions, they're both Christian. Denominations. Millions of Lutherans, millions of Roman Catholics. Millions of Germans had been baptised and confirmed into their respective churches. The people who elected Adolf Hitler as their Chancellor were baptised and confirmed Christians. They were members of his army. They manned his concentration camps. And at the end of World War II, there were six million Jews dead and 11 million Europeans dead. 17 million people dead as a result of the horror of the Nazi regime in Germany. They were people who knew the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the children of God. There's a disconnect there somewhere. To choose Christ is to accept his teaching. These 107 verses are part of what it means to choose Christ over mammon, over money. The image of the citizen, the member of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, which we are being challenged throughout these 107 verses, we're being challenged to accept as, our, as the image for which we yearn, the image to which we march, walk. To choose heavenly treasure rather than an earthly treasure. To choose to have light, lighting up our inner souls, our inner beings, the light of God's truth. To choose Christ. The person, the image of that person given to us by this sermon is a person who is sensitive to God's loving righteous scrutiny no hiding from one another maybe no hiding from God and no pretense has a, a sense of inner honesty about our weaknesses and our yearnings person who is humble meek is full of empathy for the needs of others and above all a person who is passionately committed to the God and Father who we discover in Jesus Christ. Philip says to him, oh show us the Father and we shall be satisfied and Philip says, Jesus says to Philip, you've seen me Philip, you've seen the Father and one who readily recognises the enormous power of worldly wealth and all that it stands for to entice us 
to seduce us and to kill off faith in God in us. To choose Christ is to accept a new way of looking at life. All the issues that batter us day in and day out, poverty, disease, sexual mores, gender, race, politics, business, our money. Staying inside Matthew so that we do what I think we ought to be urged always to do is to leave the verses in context. It's so easy uh, to take those verses out of context and look at them by themselves and go off on a tangent and no doubt come to good conclusions, but is it what Jesus intends us to understand by these words? So to ensure we do that, we leave them in, in situation where we find them, inside, in the midst of the sermon. So trying to be consistent with that, um, chasing through Matthew, we come to the fascinating encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler. That's how it used to be termed. I notice our Bibles just call him the rich man who comes to Jesus and asks his question. But the amazing thing about this encounter, if as we read through it and begin to understand it, is that these three images of treasure and insight and choosing the master, uh, one's master all come together in this fascinating, sad, in the end, encounter between this young chap and Jesus. You hardly need reminding as how the, the, uh, the encounter at the moment unfolds. It's a piece of conversation. Fascinating conversation. The young man comes up to Jesus and puts his question to Jesus. Um, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, the, this conversation uh, occurs in the first three Gospels. It's not only found in Matthew, it's found in Mark, and it's found in Luke. And there are little nuances of difference in one of them. The young man says, good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? But in Matthew, it's not good teacher, but what good thing must I do? And, but in both occasions, Jesus, both um, uh, records of the conversation, Jesus takes the word good and raises the question, doesn't take it very, very far, but says, why do you raise the word good? There's only one person who's good, that's God. And then leaves it and goes on with the question and answers the issue, this question which is, what good thing must I do to get eternal life. Now, those of us who are well instructed in, 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 uh, in the meaning of Christianity know that uh, you don't do anything to get eternal life. Eternal life's a gift. But Jesus doesn't correct him at that point. He goes along that that way of thinking, that's the, that's the religion of the day. So Jesus enters into the point at which he's, he's at and goes along with him and says, oh, well, we'll, we'll trace your way of doing it. Um, oh, well, these are the things you do. And so he quotes to him certain parts of the moral law of God's law, of the Mosaic law code. Oh, you know, no murder, no adultery, no lying. And without 
taking it any further as to the way he's already taught about it earlier on in the sermon. Um, the chap has obviously not heard the Sermon on the Mount. He would, he would know that uh, when Jesus says you shall not murder, when the law says you shall not murder, that, of course, covers what leads to murder, anger. No adultery, what leads to adultery, lust. No lying, what leads to lying, loose words. Well, he's, that's, that's not something that's come into his mind, and so he glibly answers Jesus, well, I've done all that. I've done all that. And Jesus doesn't push him at that point, and yet he does. But what is it? it is an insight into his blindness. At that point, we know he, this guy does not really understand what the law is all about. So what Jesus does next, when you think about it, is, is really, it's a body blow, but it's exceedingly clever. But then, of course, it's the Lord of glory who's speaking here. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so he puts to him a challenge. And the challenge is threefold. Knowing he's a man of means, he says to him, oh, well, what you must do, the guy is unsatisfied, there must be more to it. And Jesus says to him, yes, there is. And so what you must do is sell your wealth, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And don't miss out that last part. Often folk do. There is the challenge, there is the choice that he is being challenged to make. It is an attempt to stimulate his understanding that the law is meant to be more than something you hold out here. It's something that goes inside. Whether he goes away and meditates on that, we don't know. But what we do know, he's given a choice. And he turns away from it. Come, follow me. And he turns away. And Matthew makes the comment, for he had great, great wealth. It is the worst choice that anyone could ever make to walk away from God. We cannot end at that point. There is another image that I want to leave with you of Jesus between two scoundrels, thieves they're called, on the cross. A choice is being made there too. They're terrorists, they're brigands, they're guerrillas, they're rebels. And they've been arrested and they're being killed. Jesus is there in the midst. He was crucified between two thieves, it says. One of them, the darkness of his soul expresses itself in an explosion of cursing and swearing and crying at Jesus, if you are who you claim to be. The other fellow... No doubt, a man who's done some bad things, but then somewhere in his soul, there is that light of recognition. He knows that Jesus shouldn't be there. And so he rebukes 
the other chap. And he says to him, you and I should be here, but not this chap. He's done nothing deserving this. And then these words, let them sink deep into your soul and keep them there throughout your days whilst ever you are conscious to be able to say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And Jesus says, this day you will be with me in paradise. There is heavenly treasure.